A week ago, when McDonald's announced it's leaving Russia and we asked who's next, well, today we got the answer. Motley Full Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool senior analyst Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Hey, happy Monday indeed. We have a Merger Monday-esque story we're going to get to, but <laughs> let's start with Starbucks. The coffee chain announced this morning it is leaving Russia and will no longer have any kind of brand presence there. Starbucks committed to paying its Russian workers for six months and helping them transition to new jobs. But from a financial standpoint, Jason, this is not going to have as big an impact as what we talked about last week with McDonald's, because for Starbucks, it's a smaller store count and a smaller percentage of their annual revenue. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and this is this. I, th- I think Starbucks was the example that we used um, when we were talking about McDonald's uh, recently, and, and thinking, okay, well, is there another restaurant that will follow suit? I mean, Starbucks seemed like an obvious candidate. Um, just sort of giving them a chance to maybe weigh exactly what the reaction um, to McDonald's actions ultimately was. And I mean, t- to me, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, if following McDonald's lead, generally speaking, right, they're just kind of look at this, they figure, like we said, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. And, and, and when, you, when you look at Starbucks's presence in Russia, I mean, it, this is going to have a, a negligible impact on the business, right? I mean, I think it's it's something less than one percent of the company's overall revenue. And, and remember when we were talking about McDonald's before? Uh, so McDonald's in Russia, where franchisees operate only fifteen percent of the Russian locations, the the company owned the rest. And it, when you look at uh, Starbucks's presence there—that's all licensed locations. So it's not like this is this is not you know one of those situations where the company actually owns these stores. Um, but but again, less than one percent of revenue. I mean, it seems like a very easy decision to make when you look at the big picture. Generally speaking, I think most of the free world is is quite opposed to what Russia is doing, and rightly so. Um, and so this is, I think, an opportunity for companies to take a little bit of a, a step back, assess. Uh, not only where they're doing business and what what makes the most sense from an economic perspective, but also what makes the most sense from just their their core values perspective. And I think with McDonald's, we talked about you know one of the core values there being integrity and just kind of doing the right thing. And Starbucks clearly a business that's been built on that that type of a uh, framework as well. So to me. Uh, this is a decision that to, it just—it feels like a no-brainer. Uh, they had suspended operations, I think, since March uh, there, and this is really just kind of putting putting a stamp on the envelope, so to speak. Where do you suppose the bar is now for businesses like McDonald's and Starbucks when uh, thinking about entering new markets? I'm I'm just thinking, you know, five years down the line or something, you know, when when things. You know, when when hopefully the uh, what's happening in Ukraine is long past the rearview mirror, um, uh, maybe someone else is in charge uh, instead of Vladimir Putin, um, and 
they're trying to woo the McDonald's and the and the Starbucks of the world back. Like, no, 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 it's going to be better this time around. Like, does it <laughs> does it uh, does it put these businesses a little bit more in the driver's seat in terms of um, terms that they can dictate, or is or is that just sort of negligible? I feel like it definitely puts the businesses in in the driver's seat. I mean, they they've shown that they they don't need to do business there if they don't want to, right? And I mean, I get it. It, it certainly depends on the location and, and perhaps the business and, and where they source whatever they're sourcing. But for the most part, I mean, I think this really does. Um, this really is just a, a testament to the businesses holding. Uh, more leverage in this case. I mean, they they can say, "Hey, listen, we just prefer to do business in a place that's going to stand for the things that we stand for." And it 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 just really it, it ultimately boils down to sort of determining that line. I mean, this is a very easy line, I think for the most part, right? This isn't a very debatable issue. Um I think that when you get into the more debatable issues, that's when it becomes a trickier decision. And that's something that, you know, that, that remains to be seen. But for the most part, I think ultimately this gives this this puts this puts countries, this puts the leadership of these countries on notice uh, to ultimately say, you know, the companies are going to say, listen, we're we're going to do business in countries that stand for this, that do this, that 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 Take these types of actions, and, and, and they they ultimately I, I think have have the power. Whereas as opposed to the countries, uh, particularly with leadership uh, such as as Russia and and, and Putin today, uh, it, it's just a very easy decision for most companies to say, nope, we don't really want to deal with you. You're you're way more trouble than you're worth. And until things change materially and sustainably, right? I think that's that's really one of the bigger points is that you need to be able to see sort of a sustainable change, not something that's just sort of superficial, but something that's really more in depth and meaningful and longer lasting. Cloud computing business VMware is reportedly in talks to be acquired by chipmaker Broadcom. The talks are ongoing, so. We don't know what kind of terms may be involved here, whether it's all cash, all stock, or a mix. That information uh, not being available, however, is not stopping some investors because shares of VMware are up twenty percent on these reports. So I guess we'll see, hopefully, in the in the coming days, um, if not weeks, whether or not this actually goes through. Um, you and I were talking right before we started recording. Broadcom um, has grown in part through acquisition, so it is very much in the company's DNA. Um, in that sense, maybe not that surprising that they would go after VMware. No, this does feel like it would be a complementary deal if they're able to pull it off. Broadcom being more of a semiconductor-oriented business. Uh, to your point there on on growth via acquisitions, I mean Broadcom certainly has grown via acquisitions over the last several years. Uh, you look at the business today; they have forty-three and a half billion dollars in goodwill on the balance sheet, and that's basically doubled over the last five years. And ultimately, goodwill, if you remember, I mean goodwill is just. It's essentially overpaying for acquisitions, right? It's, you're making acquisitions. It kind of represents what you pay beyond sort of the fair deal, so to speak, of that acquisition, right? And oftentimes, we'll see companies over time they'll write down a lot of that goodwill, and and that you know we can 
discuss that and debate that for another time. But but uh, ultimately, as you see that goodwill number continue to creep up, you have to at least keep an eye on that, right? Because it's you start asking the question. I mean, the comp- is the company making good acquisitions? Is the company paying fair prices for these acquisitions? And so, with forty three and a half billion dollars of goodwill on the balance sheet, it's at least worth considering that hey, maybe at some point Broadcom is going to write down some of that goodwill. Who knows? Maybe they're making great acquisitions. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, this to me seems like it could be actually a pretty good acquisition if it's if it's if it's able to happen. Uh, VMware being a company that's more focused on becoming a multi-cloud leader, right? They're focused more on the cloud computing uh, market opportunity, and that's something where Broadcom uh, could really benefit. And multi-cloud is ultimately just it's that cloud computing where an organization just utilizes a combination of clouds, whether it's two or more public clouds or private clouds, a combination of public and private or edge clouds. It's it's ultimately bringing all of those cloud resources together for their customers. And and you look at how this has worked out for uh, VMware, and it's, it's so far so good, right? I mean, the company is moving more and more towards a SaaS model. Uh, which is something we we've seen that's that's been obviously a big trend over here over the past several years. And if you look at the breakdown of the of 2022 fiscal year 2022 revenue, uh, you had about 25% of the business of, of the business's revenue, which was from licensing, 50% from services servicing, and then 25% from SaaS that software as a service. It, it continues to become more and more of a subscription and servicing that subscription model. And I think that's ultimately a good thing. And so, given the direction the world is headed, given the tailwinds in the cloud computing space, I absolutely understand Broadcom's interest here. It, it probably is not a bad time to consider doing a deal like this, given where valuations are right now. Because, I mean, if you hadn't heard, Chris, we're kind of in the middle of a bear market. <laughs> it's having a bit of an impact on some stock prices. Not all, but most. Oh, I've noticed. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's, it's distinctly possible they could end up getting a VMware for a very respectable price, along with the fact that, you know, now that VMware, there was this big Dell relationship where Dell recently spun off its VMware stake uh, last November, so there's a little bit of uncertainty that's been resolved there. Uh, so maybe that's why this interest really is is developing now. Um, so yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen whether this deal actually happens or not. But it does feel like it would be a complimentary one uh, for Broadcom, and I guess really then it just depends on uh, what price they're willing to pay. Well, before I let you go, let's broaden this out a little bit. Um, there are a lot of companies that, um, from a market cap standpoint, are less expensive than they were six months ago. There are also a lot of companies out there with cash on the balance sheet. Do you think we could be entering a period over the next three to six months where we see more deal making going on, more acquisitions? Um, I'm, you know, it is not lost on me that there are no names attached to these reports. Um, there, you know, there there are no analysts, there are no executives. I trust the reporting. I, I'm not going to, you know, if uh, if Reuters and and CNBC are reporting this, I take them at their word. Um, but it just makes me wonder if we're going to see this scenario play out multiple times over the next three to six months. It feels like it should. I mean, it feels like logic dictates that it should, right? I mean. 
And I don't think it's going to be something where the obvious suspects are the acquirers, right? I don't think it's something where your your Alphabets and your Amazons and your Microsofts. Granted, Microsoft is in the middle of trying to wrap up this Activision Blizzard deal, but but for the most part, I mean, I feel like those are the companies that are really under the microscope of of, uh, of, of regulators right now, and so maybe there is this sort of lower level echelon i mean just that next step below like your broadcoms of the world where they could get away with something like this without necessarily uh getting right their own regulators uh radars there it it does feel like it's something that should happen because you're right i mean valuations have come down considerably um and and granted i mean we live in a world right now where it feels like every single headline is bad and it really, it really does feel that way. And it just feels like there's so much bad news out there right now that any any spate of good news could really turn things around. It does feel like uh, there should be more interest in making some deals happen right now, particularly for those sort of mid mid large cap companies that that aren't necessarily on the radar of regulators. Right? They have the financial resources, they have the wherewithal to get these deals done. Um, and they don't necessarily have to worry about being on regular regulators' radars. So, so it'll it, it'll definitely be interesting to see how the, the the remainder of this year shakes out. Because if these market conditions persist, and it kind of feels like they will, at least for a little while, um, yeah, it, it definitely feels like we could we could hear more uh, more news like this. Jason Moser, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. All right, enough talk about companies involved in cloud computing and semiconductor chips. Can I interest you in a publicly traded business based on selling vinyl figurines? No, really. Nick Seipel and Asit Sharma are taking a closer look at Funko, some fundamental reasons they're feeling bullish about bobbleheads, and what a new investor group could mean for the company. Welcome in, everybody. I'm Motley Fool Canada analyst Nick Seipel, and I'm here today to talk about why Funko could be a fun company for your portfolio. Joining me to help me do that is Motley Fool analyst Asit Sharma. Asit, how's it going? Great, Nick. Good to see you um, and chat with you after a long time. Yeah, it's been a long time uh, since we've been together in, in podcast land. It's great to be back here with you, and we've got a fun company to talk about today. So, Funko, if folks aren't familiar uh, with the company, you've probably seen their Funko Pop dolls, action figures, figurines uh, in stores, uh, whether it's a bookstore or Target or, or a place like GameStop. They're all over the place. They're one of the biggest pop culture merchandise providers, really, in the world. Asset, for folks who aren't familiar with Funko, what do they do? I like to think of Funko as a company that bridges the physical and digital divide. So, stuff that we experience first digitally, so movies, um, music, and video games, bringing that into collectible format with their vinyl pop figures, their bobblehead figurines, and an array of other merchandise, which includes um, backpacks, keychains, you name it. Um, This is a company that has very deep partnerships with big intellectual property giants like Disney, Netflix, Warner Brothers, Activision Blizzard. They basically license the right to intellectual property and turn out uh, these figurines, which they then distribute through big box retailers, through their own direct commerce channel, and for um, their products like backpacks through stores. And you can even buy them at Disney, which is a, a big, 
big part of this business. And, and Loungefly has been a growing part of Funko's business. It's actually up to 16% of the business, up over 100% year over year in the most recent quarter, which is helping diversify the company's revenue. Traditionally, those Funko Pop vinyl figures that you mentioned really drove the vast majority of the business, and they still drive over half of the business today. Historically, there's been some concern, just given that dependence on those Funko Pop products and that kind of being a single uh, single product company, that, that perhaps there's a little bit of a risk of Funko being a fad. However, they, they put up some really impressive growth numbers, Asset. So, so, what do you make of that potential fad risk, the dependence on, on the Pop products, and maybe uh, prospects for diversification moving into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a fair criticism of the company. Even today, if you look at their most recent quarter, um, their core collectible items make up about two-thirds of revenue. But as you mentioned, Nick, they've got now um, a good part of their business, which comes from an acquisition they made of a company based in the UK, which is Loungefly, the one we've been mentioning. They've got some other revenue streams that branch all the way into NFT sales, although no one should um, hang their hat on that as an investment thesis. Call it gravy if, if they uh, make that a more significant part of the business. These are some risks behind Funko. And I'll say, this company has some other risks behind it that traditionally have made it sort of a hard investment to really entertain, but those are falling away one by one. I mean, first, it had a very large debt load about five years ago. Uh, if you look at their the net income on their books going all the way back to say 2017, just the interest expense on their debt took out a big chunk of their earnings. They've gradually paid down uh, the debt to a more reasonable level, so it's not affecting their income statement as much, and it's not quite the existential threat on their solvency or liquidity that it was in the past. Also, they had a big private equity investor, Acon Investments, that at one point owned about 69% of this company. and. Over time, that private equity group, which has actually been pretty helpful in helping this company grow its business and diversify, they've sold off their shares bit by bit by bit. And we're going to talk about this last buyer that's come to buy shares from Acon in just a moment here. But I also want to mention they didn't have a wide enough distribution footprint. Management made the push to get into stores like Walmart and Target and to push their products globally. Another thing is they just really didn't have a great cost structure on the bottom line. But here you look today, they've just moved into a million square foot distribution center, not their headquarters, but their distribution operation. So on all fronts, this company is looking a lot more investable, and I think it is an interesting play. But Nick, what about this most recent investment? So Acon is now selling most of its shares to another group, which is made up of some pretty interesting players. Yeah, Asset. So, if you look at, at the company today, some really promising growth numbers 58% revenue growth year over year in 2021, a free cash flow positive business, a business that's put some of those uh, debt concerns behind it. And then again, uh, you had this significant private equity investor, this overhang that we talk about sometimes when you have these, these large investors. Well, on the same day that uh, Funko reported its first quarter earnings, it reported that, a- that Acon was going to sell about 80% um, of its stake, a stake equivalent to 25 uh, percent um, of Funko's business to an investment consortium uh, led by, uh, uh, among others, the Turnin Group, uh, which is led by, by Peter Turnin, a, a private equity investor that's invested in companies in the past, uh, like Barstool Sports. Another member of that uh, of that investment consortium is former Disney CEO Bob Iger, someone who probably knows a thing or two about uh, the IP licensing business. And then, lastly, uh, Rich Paul, who is uh, LeBron James's uh, sports agent as well, a significant uh, super agent in, in the sports. 
business. And so you had the, those investors buying a quarter of the company at $21 a share. If you look at where the company is trading today, it's about $19 a share. So we saw a little bit of value out there. It looks like these private equity folks did too. And then not only that, uh, these are folks you could argue can create potential additional value on top of uh, just the value they recognized in the market at 21. Yeah, I agree, Nick. This isn't your group of like financial buyers who are just in there to, to see if they can squeeze some more out of the bottom line. These are pretty forceful personalities in the business world. They want to bring their talent and their bona fides to bear here with Funko, and they are also extremely well-connected people who are used to the power of picking up the phone and getting deals done. I want to point out another investor who's actually not an individual, but a company that's part of this consortium, which is eBay eBay is now an investor in Funko, and the two companies have a new uh, partnership where there'll be a, a nice secondary market for uh, Funko's products on eBay, and the two companies will collaborate to uh, create new products. Now, we didn't mention that the fun part of Funko, or one of the really fun parts of Funko, is the fact that these collectibles can often rise in value. So, having a secondary market on uh, eBay only makes the whole proposition more valuable. Although, I should mention in the same breath, Funko's aim is to have products that are affordable to everyone. But, what do you think about all these big hitters coming in, Nick? Do you think they'll be able to add some juice to this revenue picture and help with some uh, really great creation of IP? Um, or, might this be just a little hype here. Well, whether it's hype or not, it's something we'll have to find out what kind of results they produce. I will say I tend to follow the stuff that the Turnin Group does in the past. Again, the Barstool Sports Investment, they were really transformational in getting that company up to scale. They also have some other investments in the kind of IP space, Crunchyroll, Golden Auctions, which is another kind of collectibles business. Obviously, Bob Iger, Disney, a huge, huge driver of that side of the business. So I think there's lots of value to be created here as well. And then you know, there's some some pie in the sky stuff. I'll mention it's not something that I would kind of build into the thesis or anything like that. But if you look back, yeah, I think it's 2019. There were some rumors that that Warner Media was going to produce a Funko movie uh, using the Funko IP, kind of in the vein of what you've seen with the Transformers movie or the Lego movie or the Trolls movie, that sort of thing. I could see with folks like Bob Iger and uh, and the Turning Group's actually been involved in the movie production business as well. Those folks get involved. Maybe that makes that type of optionality more likely. But in any event, you have really smart. Savvy investors that know a thing or two about the IP licensing business that recognize that have recognized Funko as a as a smart place to put their money. And listen, the Turnin Group is a private equity company. They're in the business of making money. They're not buying it just to be to be flashy. So to the extent it's hype, um, you know, they put real dollars behind this, trying to make real money. So I think these folks are smart. And listen, I thought that I thought the stock was attractive uh, even before that kind of investment took place. So it's always nice to get a little bit of confirmation bias too. Yeah, this is a company that uh, looked like a value stock before, and still does in, in some ways, even though it's had a nice pop. There's a pun for you who are fans of, of the company. A nice pop after the announcement with the first quarter earnings, earnings that you mentioned. Um, and I'll also say, too, that this is a fun type of private equity investment, because while you do have that PE angle, which is all about making the money, there's a lot of creative energy here. And for Funko, that's like oxygen for this company. They spent the last several years figuring out their distribution, getting their costs under control, getting that distribution that I talked about. Now, it's time to capitalize on creative ideas and partnerships they can build. So, I think all this is good. Um, any risks to the investment thesis that you see, Nick? 
Well, I mean, one of the big ones is they don't own the IP. So, to a certain extent, when, when you're, uh, whether it's Loungefly or, or Funko Pops, uh, they, they own the kind of design for, for the bag. They don't own the IP that's going into creating those products. So, the relationships they have with those with those other parties are, are foundational to the business. So, so maintaining those relationships is always is always going to be a key. So, that that's one risk um, that pops to mind for me. What about you, Asset? I see um, a lot of the risk that I worried over in the past has slowly melted away. I talked about the balance sheet risk and the fact that they were controlled by this other group, and that gradually diminished. Now, the replacement group looks pretty capable, will help revenue and, and earnings as well. But in the near term, you could see a little bit of deceleration from this very nice pace of revenue growth they've been enjoying. If we go into a recession that obviously hits the consumer discretionary spend, um, some would argue that because Funko's products are very accessible, maybe they don't lose that much, right? Maybe uh, people choose to buy some Funko collectibles after they've been forced to stay home and, and, and not take that vacation because of inflation. So, that's yet to be seen, but that's a near-term risk. Um, longer term is the ever-present risk that uh, people will just change the way they consume their pop culture. For the longest time, Funko has benefited from what they call evergreen properties. So, properties like Star Wars, uh, Harry Potter, the NFL, these deals that enable them to keep churning out products that never go out of style. Um, it could be that in the future, the younger generation moves to more digital products for collectibles. But here again, we mentioned they are getting a toehold in the NFT market. So, at least they'll be able to maybe compensate if that risk of the physical product uh, does become more prominent in the coming years. Yeah, I will say one thing. If you look at the the consumer and potential slowdowns as a result of of, of the consumer weakening, uh, one of the areas that I, I think about that that's probably a place that's a big demand driver for this type of kind of fandom based pop culture content is uh, you know Comic Cons and and you know those those types of of conventions. If you think about it, San Diego Comic Con is the biggest one that's been canceled the past two years. So while there are some headwinds when it comes to you know inflation, a potentially weakening weakening consumer, there are some tailwinds when it comes to reopening and, and some of these traditional demand drivers for these types of collectible products opening back up. So, before we leave, Nick, um, I, I've sort of hinted at this, but I'll ask it as, as if I didn't know. Do you or anyone in your family own any Funko products? Yes. So, we, we don't own any of the, the Funko Pop uh, figurines, but we own uh, three or four of, of the Funko Loungefly uh, bags. So, we've got a Marie one uh, from the Aristocats, and we've also got ones with the, with the little mice uh, from Cinderella. So, you know, whenever we, uh, we go on our uh, you know, hikes in the park, or actually we went to Disneyland Paris a month or two ago, uh, those bags come with us. So, uh, so, yeah, we represent a little bit. Awesome. Yeah, I have um, some in my house as well. Now, I personally don't own any products, but my uh, three sons love their bobblehead Star Wars products, especially my oldest. Uh, he collected a few. After he went to college, my two younger sons took his passport photo and taped it on the front of the bobblehead doll. You can't see it now because we're taping, and this is a, a radio-type show, but I'm showing it to Nick. Um, when we walk by, we tap the top of the bobblehead now. Almost like, hey, call home. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.